Good morning, everyone. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director of the LSC, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all to this event and welcome Secretary Jack Lew to the LSC and to this event. Um, may I also welcome our online audience because this event is being webcast live. It's a wonderful honor that Secretary Jacob Liu has made the time to be here with us at the LSE and that there will be time for all of you to ask questions in this discussion. This event is the first hosted by LSE's new U.S. Center, which is directed by Professor Peter Trubowitz and will more officially open in the Michaelmas term. In case you want to tweet about this event, the hashtag is hash LSEUS. And the nature of the event is a conversation. Secretary Liu will be in conversation with Paul Ingracia, the managing editor of Reuters, and they will have about uh, 15 or 20 minutes of discussion and then open the floor, open to questions from the floor, which I think will take in short groups of three or so. And I'd like to ask those people, when it gets to that time, those of you who stand up to speak, please wait for the microphones and please identify yourself. But now, let me get out of the way and just ask you to welcome Paul Ingracia and especially Jack Lou to the LSE. Well, thank you, Craig, for that introduction. And um, Secretary Lou, thank you for being here. You're on your way to the G7 in Dresden, uh, so it really seems best just to start with a discussion about the agenda for that meeting, and particularly the Greece situation, the Greek situation. What advice will you be giving your European partners, um, and what do you think the IMF's role should be in, in resolving the situation? Well, first, Paul, let me thank you for uh, moderating this conversation, and let me thank Craig uh, Calhoun and the London School for hosting us here this morning. I really look forward to this conversation. Um, the G7 meeting uh, will focus on many issues. It's not going to be a meeting exclusively about one topic. Um, I'm quite sure that the topic of Greece will come up, yep. um, but we have to think of it as coming up in the context of how do we have a, a global economy where uh, growth is doing better, where we have enough demand uh, to make uh, eco economies on, uh, on both sides of the Atlantic and around the world um, more, uh, more productive. Um, and obviously, one of the things that we have to focus on is uh, what are we doing to manage uh, the kinds of situations that could create uh, instability uh, that could take any of us off course. I think the situation in Greece is familiar, and it's, um, it's certainly not new. Um, uh, on the one hand, uh, it is in a much more stable place than it was, uh, say, in 2012, because most of the Greek debt is held by sovereigns. It's no longer spread through uh, all the financial institutions. On the other hand, I think that no one should have a false sense of confidence that they know what the result of a crisis in Greece would be. Uh, you know, it, it's not a good thing uh, to have uh, an economy go into crisis for there to be runs on the bank and for people in other countries to wonder what does that mean if we were to hit uh, a difficult moment. So I think it's in everyone's interest for this situation to be resolved uh, without a crisis. I think on Greece's part, there's a critical need for Greece to come up with a program that's credible, uh, that both deals with the fiscal challenges that it faces, but also that de deals with the structural reforms sure. that are so critical to its long-term economic health. 
Um, These are going to mean difficult uh, policies uh, that are hard for any government, particularly the current government, to, uh, to put forward at home. I think the challenge for the institutions, for the, the, the Europeans, uh, both in their political and economic uh, uh, organizations, for the IMF, is to show enough flexibility uh, so that if the Greeks are prepared to take the kinds of tough steps that they need to take, they find a pathway to resolving this without there being an accident and an unnecessary crisis. Well, who has to give more then, do you think, at this point? I mean, you have a point in the middle where you can compromise. Uh, is it up to the, the lenders or the Greeks? Look, I, I, I think that uh, what I've said consistently uh, over the past uh, you know, half year is that it's time for everyone to park rhetoric on the side okay. and to look for that sensible uh, place where accommodation can be found. That means that Greece is going to have to do some very tough things, that it's going to be a challenge uh, for the prime minister to sell at home. That means that the institutions are going to have to look at what it takes to actually uh, show uh, that there's a credible path forward. Um, And uh, that is, I think, the progress has been made, but not enough for it to be resolved. And there's always another deadline approaching. Yeah, my concern is not the goodwill of the parties. I don't think anyone wants this to blow up. Um, I think that what I worry most about is the accident. Uh, uh, and you have, you have moments that come up with all too much frequency uh, where uh, just a miscalculation could lead to the crisis that would be potentially very damaging. And the role we play is to urge all parties right. to be in that sensible place where they're looking uh, for for the kind of um, of uh, common areas uh, where there can be an agreement and there can be a plan uh, going forward, um, I don't think this is easy. I I, I have not urged um, anyone to say, well, just you know, kind of leave fiscal concerns aside, leave structural concerns aside. Um, I, Greece is going to have to manage uh, to have a credible plan. But equally, I've told um, you know other parties that. Um, There ought to be no uh, sense that uh, we know exactly what happens if Greece has a crisis. Uh, The notion that... We mean default, basically. Yeah, the the notion that the risk is completely contained, that there's no contagion. Mm. I think it's a mistake to think that a failure uh, is of no consequence outside of Greece. We don't know the exact scope. No doubt the worst and deepest consequence will be in Greece if there's a crisis. But I I think it's profoundly in the interest of of the European and the global economy for the accident to be avoided, for Greece to make the kinds of moves that it needs to make, and for the institutions to work with them. Are you optimistic? Look, I live my life as an optimist, so (laughs) I always try to be optimistic. Uh, I I, I, I think that uh, brinksmanship is a dangerous uh, thing when it only takes one accident. So I think everyone has to double down and treat the next deadline as if it's the last deadline and get this resolved. Um, The risk of going from deadline to deadline only increases the risk of accidents. So you mentioned your role in this is urging your European partners to take certain actions and that sort of thing. Um, So let's just talk about the concept of urging for a minute. You know, a few months ago, uh, China launched the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. You urged European uh, allies of America, your, your financial uh, and political partners to steer clear of that, but it didn't happen. In fact, uh, led by the U.K., um, 
America's allies, uh, traditional allies, really flocked to join this new institution. How did you get it wrong? What- well, let me be clear, Paul. That's not what we urged our, uh, our allies uh, to do. And we've been very clear with uh, China and with all of the mm-hmm. countries coming in on a number of things. First, that there's an enormous need for infrastructure funding in Asia and around the world. Okay. Secondly, that it's a very positive thing that China is looking to play an expanded role in providing funding for infrastructure investment. Okay. And our message to potential uh, participants in the AIB was mm-hmm. not stay away. Okay. Our message was make sure that it's an organization that is going to have the kind of standards and governance that you're comfortable with that reflect the way you do your own bilateral business and that reflects the way the international organizations have operated in the past, which does not mean it has to be a cookie cutter of the old uh, international financial institutions. But what we've, for example, suggested is that partnering, uh, co-funding between the AIIB and the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank would be a good thing. Uh, we have offered, uh, I've offered personally in my meetings uh, in China, uh, that anything that we can do to share our knowledge from our 70 years of experience working in this area, we're happy to share. Um, we want the AIIB to be a success. So, so our you, message... You want it to be a success. Our message has always been, make sure you set it up in a way that will succeed, not in a way that will fail. And... Um, uh, we continue to say the same thing. Standards matter. Governance matters. Um, I think that our influence actually can be seen in some of the conversations that are going on as the institution is organized. My conversations with, uh, with uh, my Chinese counterparts make it clear that they want the projects that are funded by the AIB to meet a standard that shows they've taken these concerns seriously. That would be a good thing. If the AIB is launched and the projects funded reflect high standards, we will applaud it. Um, So our message has always been make sure you do it right, not stay away. And are you encouraged by what you see so far? Look, it's very early. It's very early. Um, The governance is still being worked through. Uh, No projects have been funded yet. Um, I'm encouraged that there's a high degree of sensitivity to what will the results be. Will the results meet the kind of standards that I've described? I can tell you that I've had a lot of conversations about um, the, the bank uh, with uh, countries around the world, and uh, those conversations have always been about what does it take for it to succeed. Okay. Uh, well, let's, let's continue on the same vein then, because Europe's G7 members seem uh, willing and really actually even eager for uh, the Chinese currency, the yuan, to uh, have entry into the special drawing rights, the basket of currencies that is used by uh, the IMF. What's the American attitude toward that? It's, uh, the perception is there's a little more caution on the American side. No, I wouldn't say that. Our, 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 our view has been um, uh, to urge China uh, to make the kinds of reforms that uh, open up its economy, that open its currency to being a market-determined uh, exchange rate that make it freely convertible. Um, They've still got some work to do moving on that path, but they've made a lot of progress. And um, I think that the discussion about uh, inclusion in the special drawing rights brings together the efforts that are underway uh, to continue reforms in China, the desire to meet the IMF review standards in a very constructive way. And I would hope that the two come together and, uh, and that the the, the progress that China makes 
is sufficient that it warrants the decision uh, on the part of the IMF uh, to go forward and, uh, and include the RMB. But I'm not going to prejudge an IMF review process. So I think that the IMF has a technical uh, review process that's very important. There's some flexibility in that. Uh, we've not uh, been uh, urging that it be done in a rigid way. We've, we've urged that it be done in a way that encourages the reforms to continue mm-hmm. and that is open uh, to the outcome uh, of the review being positive. When do you think this might happen? What's the earliest um, time this might Well, you know, I think there's a little flexibility. You know, the, the review is this year. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be concluded this year. The IMF could decide uh, that it needs a little bit more time. What I've heard from um, my conversations in China is that they're more concerned about getting this right than they are about locking it in. So that's a good thing. If they want to make the reforms, um, this shouldn't be a question of one month or another month. It ought to be a question of, you know, have they made the reforms? And, um, and they certainly have expressed the interest in doing that. So most likely then, not this year, but maybe next? Is that- I, I'm not going to assess the likelihood. I'm not deeply involved in the technical review at the IMF. It is a technical review that the IMF does. We participate, as all countries do, uh, but it is a, an IMF uh, uh, process, right. and, okay. uh, and I, I, I'll leave it to the IMF to talk about where that process is on the timeline. What I focused on is, in my conversations, both with China and with the IMF, is are they serious about making the kinds of reforms that are needed? Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, uh, that's a very important uh, set of decisions. Look, we've made no secret over the last number of years right. that with regard to the exchange rate, China's policy on exchange rate has been a, a source of considerable concern. It was a, a significant accomplishment when, through the course of discussions with China in our strategic and economic dialogues, China made the commitment to refrain from uh, the, most of the intervention that it had been doing, mm-hmm. uh, that it had agreed at the G20 to go forward and uh, participate in the IMF's transparency uh, process, uh, and that we've seen dramatic shift uh, and movement in terms of the exchange rate. We think there's still more work to be done there, uh, but they're on a course that's moving in the right direction. We encourage that course to continue. There are other issues that um, I know the IMF will be looking at in terms of how uh, broadly usable the currency is around the world. Those are technical issues that I, right. I really leave uh, to the IMF to resolve. So I want to ask a couple more questions before we open up to questions from the audience here. Um, trade is a big issue on the American agenda right now, obviously on the European agenda and on the Asian agenda. It's run into some difficulties in Congress. Those difficulties seem to be um, being worked through. Um, what, what Can you give us your outlook for these uh, major trade deals that are sort of pending now? Uh, what, what do you think will, will the next few months bring on this regard? Well, obviously, in the United States, the next uh, order of business is uh, to move uh, in complete action on what we call trade promotion authority right. in TPA. the United States, TPA. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States Senate uh, approved it uh, at the end of last week. It will move over to our House of Representatives, right. uh, where I'm optimistic that we're going to uh, have enough support to pass it. Well, that's very important because uh, it will provide for a procedure for the United States to approve a trade agreement when we reach one in the Pacific and ultimately uh, in Europe. Um, I think that the importance of congressional action cannot be uh, uh, exaggerated. It it provides for a fast-track procedure, which is very important, but it also provides a mechanism for Congress 
to give signals and direction to the negotiators so that we know that the executive branch and the legislative branch are moving in the same direction. Um, the debate was an important one. Right. Um, it um, underscores the need for us to have uh, trade agreements that are enforceable. It underscores the importance uh, to Congress that in the context of a trade agreement, particularly in the Pacific, that the issue of uh, currency policy be something that we discuss. And uh, it underscores the need to make sure that we don't take actions in a trade agreement that undermine our ability to ensure that things like our ability to regulate uh, the financial services sector is undermined. I think these are challenges that we can meet in the trade negotiations. I think that we're on a path in uh, our TPP, our Pacific negotiations, to resolving uh, the remaining issues. Um, I actually think that our trading partners need to see that there's the ability in the United States to approve a trade agreement, which is what TPA represents. Right. And that will give us the ability, I believe, to get the kind of agreement that we can come back and get our Congress to ultimately approve. But to be clear, these trade agreements are profoundly important in terms of opening up markets for international trade, which is very important in terms of mm -hmm. better global growth. From a U.S. perspective, it's important that we open up markets so that they not be closed down by other agreements that are exclusive of the United States. Um, I think that the notion that these trade agreements raise standards is a critically important one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're going to see higher labor standards, higher environmental standards, better business practices, less, you know, more, more regularity, less corruption. These are all important things, uh, not just in terms of global trade, but in terms of advancing uh, the values that uh, we in the United States, I think, share with uh, the UK and many other countries. Um, the fact that those are things that uh, trading partners are prepared to agree to in the context of a trade agreement shows the real value of what TPP represents, saying set a high bar, set high standards, and invite those who are willing to live by high standards to come. We did that by setting up the TPP based on that principle, right. and we saw quite substantial interest in the region. Now the challenge is to get it over the finish line, and I believe we will. So you mentioned the U.K., and since we are in London, um, there was an election here recently. Um, the Scottish Nationalist Party uh, really took control of Scotland and the uh, Scottish delegation in, in the U.K. Parliament. Are you concerned – how do you view the U.K. political situation? Are you concerned about the, uh, the chances that Britain will vote to leave uh, you know, the EU and the referendum coming up on that? And what about Scotland's prospects for staying in the, in the United Kingdom? This has got to be a concern to I, you. I, uh, I think I'll refrain from commenting on internal politics uh, in the U.K. I have, uh, I have, he wants uh, off easy here, folks. <laughs> I have uh, substantial challenges explaining politics uh, back home. Um, look, I think it, 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 the United States, we have a long tradition where we have seen the value of political and economic union uh, mm -hmm. on our side of the Atlantic. Okay. Um, I really leave it uh, to Europeans and to the people of the U.K., to make their decisions about their own future. Okay, uh, good enough, thank you. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna get, I'm afraid. <laughs> now, I'd like to open this up to uh, questions from members of the audience. Uh, and just to uh, set a couple ground rules, if I could first have questions from students and then we'll open it up to a, a broader group. And I wanna make sure I uh, include the, the balcony too. Uh, I also like to call on two people at once so the microphones can get there 
so we can be efficient <coughs> in getting in as many questions for the Secretary uh, as we can. So with that in mind, uh, does any hands want to go up to signal question for Secretary Liu? Okay, over here. And is there one more that we can get a microphone to? Okay, great. Please. Um, thank you very much for being here for us, uh, Secretary Liu. Um, my name is Sana Musharraf, and I'm from can you Pakistan. Can the microphone a little closer? Yeah, I'm from Pakistan, and I'm doing an MSc in law and accounting here. I'd like to know and understand what is your view or position on the changing global political power dynamics and the economic power shift uh, within the regions, and how do you think the or what do you think would be the role played by the U.S. as a former perceived superpower? <laughs> Rephrase the question, or should I? I, th I? I think I'll rephrase it in answering. How's that? <laughs> we take the leadership role of the United States as a global power very seriously. Uh, it's, I think, been important to the history of the world for at least the last 70 years that U.S. leadership, both politically and economically, has helped to shape a better future for people around the world. Um, the reality is that Population growth and economic growth is in places uh, outside of the United States um, in the future. We, that's why emerging economies are called emerging economies. And the challenge is how to bring the voices of emerging economies into the existing framework uh, and to have that existing framework evolve in a natural way going forward. I don't think the answer is for the United States to step back. The answer is for the United States to step forward and to be embracing and open about the fact that there are new voices that really warrant being part of the process. Frankly, that's why it's so important in the United States that we approve the IMF quota reforms that were negotiated five years ago. It reflected a very successful effort to open the IMF to increase participation by emerging economies, preserving a balance uh, that reflects the history of the past 70 years, but going forward, bringing new resources in and new voices in. I think that the conversation we were having about the AAIB is part of that. Mm -hmm. It's how do new institutions or contributions to old institutions become effective parts of an ongoing effort uh, to have a growing and healthy global economy. Um, I hope I answered the questions about the, 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 the new institution a few minutes ago, but I think we've got to focus on the value of the existing institutions and strengthening them and expanding them and having them uh, play a role for the 21st century that's just as critical as the role that they played in the 20th century, and I see the U.S. leadership as essential to that. Who else has the microphone somewhere up? Uh... Oh, right. No? Any other questions up here? Okay, right over here. Sorry. Um. <coughs> One over here uh, in the in the front row, and then this gentleman over here in the in the back after that. Uh, yeah, so I'm Ruben. I'm studying global politics here at LSE, and I actually just wanted to follow up question on the IMF reforms that were passed. Um, I'm just wondering what your thoughts were on the outlook of having that passed through the American legislature anytime soon. 
Look, I, I, I have said publicly many times that it's uh, both bad for the United States and it's bad for the world economy and, uh, and, and the, the, the health of uh, the institution for the United States to have taken as long as it has. With that said, um, I am confident that it will be approved. Um, we are working hard with Congress to find a path forward. I think there is a path forward. Um, what I think is clear is that uh, it profoundly serves the U.S. economic and national security interests for the IMF quota reforms to be approved. And I think what I hear as I go around the world is that that's a view shared globally. It doesn't matter if I'm in Asia, if I'm in Africa, or in Europe. Uh, there is a broad view that the United States needs to approve the reforms, that the reforms which we helped to design are the best path forward for a more inclusive uh, IMF, which brings more voices uh, into the conversation in a strong way. Um, I'm confident we will get that done. Um, it has never been easy in the United States to approve things like uh, IMF quota reforms. I've had the pleasure of working on these issues in three decades. It wasn't easy 20 years ago or 30 years ago either, um, but I'm confident we will get it done. Up here, sir, and then I'm going to come down to the main floor for the next question. If someone wants to get uh, over here, then the green shirt. Hi, um, I'm, my name is Josh. I'm a student from the International Relations Department. My question is, do you see potential membership for China in the TPP? And also, um, just curious, why is like Vietnam a member of the TPP, but not China? Thank you. So when we started the conversation about TPP in 2009, um, the principle was we're going to set high standards in this trade agreement, and we invited any country that was willing to live by those high standards to come in and be part of the negotiation. That meant a willingness uh, to work together on things like you know, labor standards, environmental standards, uh, the, 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 the business uh, climate uh, and openness of an economy. Um, we've ended up with a core uh, that's very powerful in terms of the countries in the Pacific region where when we reach agreement, I think it will be transformational in terms of raising uh, the, the quality of openness and standards at the same time. We continue to have the view that TPP should be open to countries in the region that are prepared to embrace the standards of what I hope will soon be an agreement. And that's a message that we have been uh, uniformly consistent delivering. Um, I must say the interest that we've heard from China has evolved over the last few years from a question of somewhat ill ease at the idea of it to asking questions about what would it take to meet those standards. And I think as China goes through its reform process, that's a healthy thing. China needs to have a significant number of reforms for its own internal economic well-being. And as it goes through those reform processes, it will be closer to meeting the kinds of standards that a TPP would require. Obviously, we first have to get a TPP agreement. We're in the final stages of negotiating with the countries that are in the TPP now. And I think that when we reach that final agreement, it will become, I think, quite historic that a high standard became a magnet to pull countries in a region in uh, to try and both reach an agreement on opening markets, but achieving the very high levels 
that are involved in the TPP. Uh, over here, please, and then let's get somebody else lined up on the back over here. That's fine. Go ahead. Great. Uh, hi. Uh, I'm an undergraduate over here, down here. Yep. I don't see where. Oh, there you are. Hey. <laughs> uh, I'm an undergraduate general course student at the LSC, Joseph Nelson. Uh, first, thanks for taking the time to have a conversation with us today. I had a question about another upcoming conference coming up in Europe, the COP21 Climate Agreement Conference in uh, Paris in December. I was curious what your thoughts are on the path forward and perhaps if the United States is supportive of a tax on carbon or what sort of international agreement you would like to see come forth after those negotiations. Look, we have made um, climate change a very high priority in the Obama administration, and we're preparing uh, for the Paris conference both by doing what we need to do domestically to meet the high standards that we already set in Copenhagen and to set a course towards uh, reaching an agreement in Paris that will move that conversation forward. I think the agreement that President Obama and President Xi uh, reached in, in their meetings was very important, bringing the largest developed economy, the largest emerging economy together, focusing on the importance of dealing with climate change, both as an economic and health matter, um, was very important. I've been focused from my vantage point on funding uh, for climate change, uh, things like green uh, climate funding. We have encouraged the participation in the Green Climate Fund by countries around the world because we think that it's critically important that there be a funding source to meet what is a significant uh, capital uh, requirement, uh, both to develop uh, renewable technologies and to uh, put in place mitigation strategies uh, where needed. Um, we're in the stages of preparing for the, the Paris uh, talks, and I'm certainly hopeful that when we get to Paris, there will be both a consensus on high standards, but also the things that we can do to help countries uh, fund what is necessary to get from here to there. Uh, we had someone in the back here, and then I'll, we'll come up to you next, please. Yeah. Hi, Secretary Liu. Uh, my name is Jake. I'm a student studying climate economics from New Mexico, from the U.S., um, and my question was just taken. But I'll ask another. Um, I'm interested in, in where, where you see giving um, you know, the, the, the new, new approaches in the TPP and the TTIP um, for, I guess, having environmental standards agreed upon through trade agreements. Um, how do you see that impacting what the future trade agreements um, the U.S. is involved in from here on out? Look, I think that um, the, the U.S. Um, comes to the table with the most open markets in the world and in many, if not all cases, the highest standards in terms of labor standards and environmental standards, safety standards. So we take our responsibility very seriously independently. But when we come into a negotiation, we also are very focused on the fact that to level the playing field around the world, one needs to have some shared acceptance of these high standards. It's also very much the case that we can't solve global problems just by implementing policies in the United States. There has to be a shared approach. Um, otherwise, you'll end up with a beggar-thy-neighbor uh, system of competition. And things like non-tariff barriers will replace tariff barriers as the, the way to, to gain market advantage. With that said, we're not going to end up with a single system of global policy on every issue. It's going to be a, a, a process of national differences being reflected 
and protecting national uh, legislative and executive authorities to make law. I mean, we're not prepared, for example, to have our um, health and safety laws or our uh, financial regulatory laws uh, undermined uh, by uh, a trade agreement. We understand that countries need to make policy in their national interest. On the other hand, there has to be a process of reaching a consensus on what are norms. And that's the kind of discussion that's going on in many of the sub-areas of the TPP and uh, ultimately the TTIP negotiation. TPP is a bit farther along, you know, so it's easier to see how it is coming together. Uh, but on the other hand, the differences are less uh, broad in, in, uh, in, in the case of the United States and many of our European friends. Uh, down here, before, before you ask your question, though, I want to also say that uh, I'm going to now open it up uh, to, to non-students as well, including uh, members of the press back there, in case you guys have any. So, please. Uh, hi, Secretary Liu. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, my name is Pranav, and I'm a master's student here. Um, my question is about Chinese currency undervaluation. Uh, you spoke about it earlier, um, and I found it interesting that the IMF came out recently and said that they believe that the uh, yuan is currently uh, correctly valued, and you said that the uh, official U.S. position is that you still believe there's work to be done. So I'm curious to know, uh, you know, how much more work do you think there is to be done? Uh, what exactly do you want to see come out of that? And uh, do you see a future for the yuan as possibly being a, a global reserve currency? Thank you. Good question. Look, the, um, the truth is that uh, we have engaged with China over the last number of years quite intensely on this issue. Just a year ago at our strategic and economic dialogues, we achieved something of a breakthrough uh, where China acknowledged its policies of intervention and agreed to refrain except in what amount to extraordinary circumstances. And um, we also saw at the fall meeting of the G20 China's acceptance of uh, the IMF's transparency protocols, which give you the ability to see what our country's doing. You know, the, 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 the reality is the test is going to be a test over time um, because, you know, we've saw many years of intervention. We've seen now a period of time where that intervention has been stepped down. There are, you know, legitimate cases that can be made as to what the definition of properly valued is. We continue to think that it's undervalued. I haven't had a chance to read the IMF uh, study. It just I read about it in the newspaper this morning, but I was traveling. Um, I, I think the, the standard has to be, what will they do when there's pressure on the RMB um, to, for competitive purposes? Will they continue to refrain from intervention? Um, and going forward, um, are they truly committed to having a market-determined exchange rate? Um, I've been very open recognizing the progress that China has made. Not always a popular thing to do in the United States, but I think it's important to be open and recognize when there's movement. Um, I think it would be a mistake to say we're done, that this conversation is over, we're moving on to something else. I think that China knows we're going to remain very focused on it. Uh, they care deeply about the U.S.-China relationship being strong, and I've made it clear in my conversations that this policy continuing to be one that they make progress on is a very important part of that. So I think that you know, the, the challenge going forward is clear. Um, the, the role of China as a global currency is, frankly, something that China will have to make some uh, internal decisions on. 
uh, you know, they they, um, they will they have not made their currency fully convertible. They have not opened their capital markets fully. They have to decide that they're ready to uh, be that much exposed to the rest of the world, um, and that those are decisions that that they control. Um, we discussed earlier the decision on inclusion in the special drawing rights basket. Um, and as I say, those are conversations that should continue. If China stays on the course it's on, um, you know, it's a conversation that, uh, that you know, could lead uh, ultimately to the inclusion of the RMB. Um, you know, staying on the reform agenda is the least common denominator of both. Of the, 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 both. I, I think that's you know, happily in China's internal economic interest. Uh, it's in the global economic interest, and it's in the U.S. economic interest. So I think that it's a case where one can be optimistic that there will be continuing progress. But it's going to require ongoing attention. Oh, was there one in front here? Okay, there's two in front. Okay. Oh, okay, sure. Thank you, Secretary Liu. My name is Trevor Gowan. I'm a history student here at LSE. Um, looking domestically, as you served in the end of the Clinton administration, uh, now you're serving at the end of the Obama administration, looking out maybe five or ten years as some things that we saw as unforeseen at the end of the 90s, like the crisis in 2008, what should we be thinking about looking forward five or ten years um, that maybe we're not spending enough time on? Um, and where do you really see that conversation going? It's a good question. Um, I would say the thing that pops out immediately is uh, the, the cyber risks. Um, if you look back uh, to the 1990s, um, none of us knew what it meant to have cyber exposure um, that could threaten uh, you know, economic and national security interests. Now there isn't a day that uh, somebody like myself or a CEO doesn't uh, wake up and check and make sure that nothing happened the day before. Um, It's it's also the kind of a challenge that is not something that we're going to solve and move on, because it it will be an evolving challenge. You know, you close one port of entry and another one opens up. Uh, Technology isn't isn't just flat. Uh, You know, there are you know, good people developing new technology. There are bad people developing new technology. I think this is something that each of us has a responsibility in. Um, it's, there's certainly a public responsibility to pay attention to what can we do both to protect our systems and people who fit, interface with our systems. Uh, we also um, can set standards. Our uh, standard-setting body, NIST, has set best practices standards that we think should be adhered to. They're voluntary, but they're best practices. There's also uh, individual responsibility. Um, We're going to have to change our uh, trusting uh, habits of opening attachments that come to us, because that's how cyber threats enter our systems in many cases. Unwittingly, opening an attachment lets some bad attack into your personal files or your whole system. There's also a business uh, uh, set of responsibilities, both at the firm level and more broadly. And I think there's a role for insurance. There's a role for, um, for industry-wide standards and accountability. Um, I think this is an area that um, uh, you know, I suspect, if anything, as much time as I spend on it, my successor will spend even more time on it because it's an emerging set of concerns. Right next door, you had a question, and then we'll go back to the... Uh, Hi, I'm visiting here from Canada. I'm Sandra Schwartz. 
I have a question about the uh, heavy arm of the U.S. in regulating foreign bank accounts for people who are legitimately living abroad. The current uh, state of the, uh, of the regulations is making it hard for people to get mortgages. Uh, banks, banks are being closed. Uh, they're in a double bind because you can't have the accounts in the U.S., but all of a sudden you can't have them abroad. Uh, uh, professionals who have any... Uh, uh, relationship to money in foreign companies now have to be reported, so they're losing jobs because of the extra reporting that uh, these companies are now under if they have Americans in key positions. I find it's incredibly unfair that we're, for, even for economic competition for the U.S., that legitimate people who are living abroad are having difficulty dealing with their finances. Anything you can do? I think that um, the, the standards we have do require reporting, but they don't uh, present an obstacle to, for most people to participate in the international economy and the banking system. Um, and obviously, uh, there are issues that uh, information needs to flow uh, smoothly uh, so that people know how to comply, uh, and we make best efforts to do that. I hope you would look into it more because. I know we've been trying to get a mortgage in a bank that we've dealt with for 40 years, and the reporting uh, that they now have to go through when we've always acknowledged to the U.S. what our accounts are is incredible. Okay, let's go on back to the fourth estate back here, <laughs> if I can. You guys have been patient in the back row. I can't call on Reuters first. I'm sorry. Guys. Uh, please. Uh, hi, Secretary Liu. Andrew Maida from Bloomberg News. Uh, I'd like to ask you a question about Ukraine. Uh, is there going to be a discussion at the G7 about funding for Ukraine? Obviously, things are coming to a head there. They've got a, a debt restructuring negotiation that's currently taking place. The IMF has said if there's not a deal by June that uh, they, they likely won't disperse any further funding. Do you expect uh, the G7 to step up with more funding? In, in particular, would the U.S. be open to that? Look, just yesterday, the U.S. finalized um, the second of our loan guarantees. So we've now finalized $2 billion of loan guarantees. Our uh, pending budget includes a proposed third uh, tranche of another billion dollars, you know, conditioned on the ongoing reform process continuing in Ukraine. I think Europe has uh, provided substantial support at all of the meetings we've had over the last year. There's been um, tremendous unity. Uh, within uh, the G7, both on the importance of providing uh, support to Ukraine's economy and also to working together to put pressure uh, on Russia uh, to reverse its policies and to abide by the Minsk Accords. I think that uh, you know, the, the question of what next steps need to be taken obviously is a, a challenging one in a situation where the geopolitical environment is still um, is still pretty rough. Uh, you know, a big part of Ukraine's economy is essentially cut off from Ukraine because of Russia's aggression. I think that the the conversations that Ukraine is having with its um, creditors are important conversations. I think we've demonstrated through our public actions that uh, there is a willingness to sacrifice. These loan guarantees are not free. Uh, the loan guarantees reflect a high degree of risk that we're taking on on behalf of uh, the American people. 
Um, you know, I've said uh, publicly, and, and I believe that uh, it's going to take um, a, a, a significant uh, amount of action by stakeholders that care about the future of Ukraine uh, to both uh, uh, understand the kinds of sacrifice that would be necessary, but to make decisions that are in the enlightened self-interest of each party. Now, from a public perspective, I think that we have a definite uh, interest in the political stability of Ukraine and sending a clear message that you can't, uh, in the 21st century, uh, destroy a country uh, you know, through aggression, uh, counting on the economic collapse of the country uh, to be ultimately the thing that brings them down. Um, individual uh, uh, investors will obviously have to make their own judgments uh, about what their proper course of action is, but I think it's going to require everyone who's involved uh, to look for the, 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 the pathway for a stable uh, future for Ukraine. Anybody else in the back row? Um, yeah, over here, this woman in the blue. <laughs> Hello, Heather Stewart from The Guardian. Um, to what extent are you monitoring the potential impact of um, an increase in interest rates by the Federal Reserve later in the year. Yenon has talked a little bit about how there might be some distorting, distorted behaviour in markets. There might be some bubbles. She talked about equity prices, for example, and certainly emerging, some emerging economies are quite concerned about the potential impact of a rate rise. Is that something that you're examining, thinking about? Is that on your list of kind of risks as we go forward? I leave monetary policy to our Federal Reserve Board and don't comment uh, on their actions. Uh, uh, what I worry about is the kind of core performance of the U.S. economy. And, um, you know, I certainly uh, aspire to deliver an economy that is in solid shape uh, so that it uh, can give rise to decisions to be made that reflect the kinds of decisions you make with a strengthening economy. Um, you know, I think that, the you know, in general, the conversations uh, amongst central bankers have shown an increasing uh, understanding of the need to be clear in communication. And uh, I, I think I'll leave it to them uh, to communicate uh, uh, those messages. If I could actually ask a follow-up question to that, because economic growth in the United States, which is your responsibility, yep. of course, has slowed uh, you know, in the first quarter. Very disappointing. Um, what's the outlook for the rest of the year? Uh, what, what do you think needs to be done? Are you, the U.K. has done far better than... United States in terms of economic growth? I think the first quarter was somewhat anomalous. Um, it, we seem to have a pattern for the last few years of the first quarter having that characteristic. Okay. combination of very cold winters with rough weather. Right. This year we also had a port strike in Los Angeles, right. which you know, had uh, you know, some impact on, on the overall mm -hmm. performance in the quarter. I think you look at labor markets, um, they are showing continued sign of uh, recovery and, and growth. Okay. Um, and uh, we continue to see uh, confidence levels that are quite uh, high. Um, so I'm, I, I'm looking at the back half of the year as being uh, much stronger than the first half. That is, I think, something that's a commonly shared view. If you look at mm -hmm. the major forecasts, both public and private sector forecasts all show that. Um, the, 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 it, it certainly uh, would be preferable if, uh, if we didn't have an anomalous first quarter, but I wouldn't let that uh, distract from what has been the basic trajectory of the last year, 18 months, which is continued growth, continued progress. Um, you know, the exact level of growth um, year on year is affected by uh, a weak first quarter. 
Um, but uh, but the, the core strength of the economy is, I think, clear, uh, you know, and it's continuing. Uh, look, there are things we could do to further strengthen the U.S. economy. Such as? Uh, we, we know that um, if we were to uh, undertake the kind of investment in infrastructure that we need mm -hmm. to build our economic base for the future, it would have a meaningful impact on uh, the economy, not just in the long run, but in the short run as well. Mm -hmm. um, we know that uh, there's a need for uh, yeah, business tax reform in the United States where uh, you know, we have the highest statutory rate in the developed world with a tax code that's riddled with loopholes and deductions mm. so that economic decisions are as much made to accommodate tax planning right. as business planning objectives. We can fix that. And we can bring these two things together because when we do business tax reform, right. it will have the effect of producing one-time revenue, and that one-time revenue could be used to fund infrastructure for the next six years. If we had a six-year funded infrastructure program and if we had tax reform that freed businesses to make the kinds of decisions that are strictly economic and not driven by tax planning, I think that would have substantial positive impact on the economy. Okay, great. Uh, in the back row here, sir. Yes. I'm going to come back to the balcony, too. I haven't forgotten about you guys. <laughs> Uh, hello, I'm uh, Ned Swan. I'm a partner in the law firm Elborn Mitchell here in London. Uh, my question has to do with the uh, recent um, fines and other penalties that have been imposed on international financial organizations for manipulating LIBOR, the ISDAFIX, Forex, uh, and, uh, and uh, credit default swaps. And I wonder whether you have a view as to whether these manipulations might have affected national economies to some extent in, for example, the economy of Greece. Uh, for example, and uh, in the event that, um, uh, and in addition to that, uh, do you think that the uh, U.S.'s decisions to grant waivers to the people that may have been involved in those manipulations are undermining the, what you described as the high uh, financial regulation standards in the U.S.? Look, I think that um, it is important that individuals and institutions that break the law be held accountable for their actions. I think that you've seen through the regulatory practices and prosecution practices in the United States that that is a view that um, is reflected in the actions uh, as well. Um, I think that the waivers um, are uh, designed to make sure that the impact of the penalties doesn't uh, have unintended consequences, uh, but that it holds the parties who've behaved badly accountable uh, without creating um, the kinds of massive uh, repercussions that might make it more difficult to actually prosecute. Um, and uh, the, the, the real challenge is how do you change the culture in um, businesses that for too long have made decisions as if they wouldn't be held accountable uh, for bad behavior, whether it's rigging uh, uh, money indexes, whether it's violating uh, terrorist financing laws, whether it's uh, uh, engaging in, um, in the kinds of uh, activities that, um, that, that, that we've seen subject to uh, legal action uh, over the last year, like tax fraud. These are bad things to do. 
Uh, it ought to be that um, at the top of the food chain and all the way down, the signal is sent, it's unacceptable. And that you won't work at this firm if you do those kinds of things, even if you don't get prosecuted. That you're going to be held to a standard that's, that you have to obey the law. You have to behave ethically. So I think at the core of these, you know, these enforcement actions and these prosecutions is a need for a change in behavior. And uh, I think that the signal has been I th- sent quite clearly that there is now risk um, that you're going to get caught and that you know, legal action and regulatory action is likely to follow. I hope we see the next step, that we see the kind of self-policing that makes less of this kind of action necessary going forward in the future. I think we have time for just one more question. So why don't we go to uh, up here in the, in the balcony then, please. Are you... Uh, so, uh, this lady over here. Thank you. Um, I'm Elizabeth Block, a writer on um, renewable energy and a proud member of Democrats Abroad UK. But I'm now speaking as an individual. In regard to the trade partnership, TTIP, um, as you know, there's a lot of opposition. You spoke of high standards and openness. But as you know, there's a lot of fear here in Britain that the National Health Service, which, of course, you know, is highly prized, would be subject to American corporations challenging any attempt to keep it state-owned. And in terms of environmental standards, I'm really very surprised to hear you say that under this partnership, American corporations and other corporations, um, international, would... (laughs) would try to get the highest possible environmental standards instead of challenging attempts to protect, you know, wildlife, whatever it is. Can you comment on that, please? Well, you've combined a number of issues. Um, I think that um, it's important for each country to retain its ability um, to make its sovereign laws for itself. So um, we we have not... uh, proposed, nor do we support having trade agreements that take that away. Um, and on the other hand, we do think that uh, there need, that uh, individuals and companies doing business abroad have to have the ability to have the legal protection in a country where they're doing business that's accorded uh, to citizens of the country, um, where um, in the financial area, uh, things like uh, uh, expropriation of property and funds can't take place willy-nilly. There's been a lot of misinformation about the scope of uh, what the legal uh, protections are. Um, We're trying, as we go through the negotiations in the TPP, which are farther along, to clarify some of these issues. And I'm sure as we get further along in the uh, European negotiations, the same will be true there. I hate to cut this off now, but uh, this man has business to do. Uh, I'm afraid he has to uh, get off to the G7 meeting. I just want to, first of all, thank every member of the audience here for really good questions and for a very active listening and participation. And, of course, I want to thank Secretary Liu for being very candid and open with us. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for all of you here.